0: Good afternoon. My name is Nina Shea. I direct the Center for Religious Freedom here. And I'm a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. And we have a very exciting and timely program today, because at this very moment, uh, President Trump is sitting down at the White House with President El-Sisi of Egypt. And our topic today is uh, going to ask you all to turn off your cell phones. I forgot to say that. But uh, we're going to be talking about US-Egyptian relations in the age of ISIS. And um, Egypt, of course, is a close ally in the Arab world of the United States. It is the most populous Arab country. And uh, Sam Tadros has told me that a quarter of the world's Arab speakers are in Egypt or from Egypt. Um, it also has the largest um, non-Muslim population in the Arab world, or the largest um, Christian population of the Copts. Um, there are more Copts in Egypt than there are Jews in Israel, so it really is a significant non-Muslim population. It is one of the United States' largest aid recipients and has been for many years. Um, it receives annually about $1.3 billion in assistance. There's also the Suez Canal and the Camp David Courts that have been traditionally at the heart of American interests in Egypt. So President Trump has announced this visit as an occasion to reboot our relationship. And we're going to be discussing what that will look like. Um, in 2009 you'll recall that President Obama went to Egypt and delivered uh, a new initiative speech um, which was a, a significant uh, turning point uh, or was to, was intended to be a turning point where he said that um, he hoped to have a new beginning for the u.s relationship with the Muslim world and, and addressed his remarks um over the head of the gov- head of the government, President Mubarak at the time, to directly to the Muslim people. So this is a very new reboot, and we're going to begin by um, talking about uh, what is going on right now in the Oval Office or in the White House. What is the conversation? So I'd like to start with Sam. Uh, Sam Todros is a Hudson Center uh, senior fellow. He is the author of the book, Motherland Lost, Egypt and Coptic Quest for Modernity. He um, has mapped Islamism in Egypt, and he has written widely for the media, um, including uh, the Wall Street Journal and Current Trends in Islamic Ideology and The Atlantic and many other publications. And he is Egyptian. Um, Ambassador Alberto Fernandez is sitting next to me on my left and he is vice president of the Middle East Media Research Institute. He was also the coordinator for strategic counterterrorism communications at the State Department for three years in the um, during the Obama administration. He is a career foreign, he has been a career foreign uh, official for 30 years and servicing mostly in the Middle East, but also in Latin America and other countries. So we're going to begin by, uh, Sam, I'd like you to tell us what you think. We don't know exactly what is going to be discussed at this meeting today, um, but what you think is in the Egyptian portfolio. What are their interests?
1: Well, thank you, Nina, for the introduction. I think, in a sense, the Egyptian goal of this visit has already been achieved. Um, the most important thing for President Sisi was receiving this invitation to Washington and being welcomed in the White House. Uh, for the past three years, since, he, um, since the military coup that removed the Muslim Brotherhood, and since he came to power, he has felt that the world has not seen him as, in a sense, legitimate. Um, this uh, comments about the military coup versus a popular uprising, uh, comments about the the repression in the country, and the Obama administration's lack of um, interest in welcoming him to Washington has made him very keen on getting that target, being welcomed in Washington, being seen as an equal partner, as an ally of the United States. So that in it it of itself has been the first goal of the Egyptian side in this visit. However, the Egyptian president also comes with uh, a lot of asks. Um, The Obama administration had put certain restrictions on military aid to Egypt concerning cash flow financing, uh, limits on Egypt's ability that it had for many years, only second to Israel, in being able to buy weapons, in advance, paying them for for them later, certain limits on the kinds of weapons that Egypt would uh, be able to uh, buy. The Obama administration created four uh, specific restrictions on the kind of uh, military equipment that would be allowed for the Egyptians or, or would be encouraged for the Egyptians to acquire. So the first thing on his or the first priority for him is to remove those restrictions. The Egyptians would want more weapons, would want weapons not limited to the four categories that the Obama administration has, identified. Um, Second portfolio or second issue for him is economic aid. Egypt is confronting an economic uh, problems to say the least. Um, it's been able to secure some funding, significant funding from the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, but they'd like more U.S. commitment and assistance uh, to the economic problems of the country. In general, the Egyptian military historically and the presidency have viewed the U.S. aid as a uh, theirs by right. They have signed the Peace Treaty with Israel, and that's the price that uh, the United States was committed to. And B, that it has diminished in terms of value over the years. What $1.3 billion could have bought you in 1979 is not what it buys you today. So from the Egyptian perspective, they'd like more money for weapons, more money for economic aid, and more um, symbolic support for Egypt. Um, uh, sense that Egypt is still uh, the leader of the um, Middle East, of the Arab world, that it still matters, uh, the Egyptian president is likely to come with suggestions um, of a role that he can play in the peace process, uh, that Egypt can be there as a partner, a broker in that process, basically re Egypt as one of the most important allies for the United States in the Middle East.
0: Well, the, uh, this visit comes at an inflection point when ISIS is, uh, seems to be re-establishing itself maybe in the Sinai and has um, produced a number of videos and statements, which is an interest, of course, um, of the uh, Trump administration. President Trump has uh, vowed to eradicate radical Islamic terror from the face of the earth, um, but yet uh, he has also, the administration is opposed to nation building and uh, wants to reduce foreign aid. So, Ambassador, what is going to be the American portfolio?
2: Well, I think, um, and Samuel described I think, very well, just as the um, CC government came in, um, you know, gaining something from an initial meeting, I think the, the new American administration also uses this first meeting to also put down a marker that it has uh, interests which are overwhelmingly national security related, and it's not going to be distracted from a kind of uh, the background story of the previous Obama years and the diffidence that existed in the Obama administration about dealing with Egypt on certain things. Uh, that it's basically putting a marker down that we are going to engage with Egypt, we are going to engage in a full-throated way with the Egyptian government, with the CC government, to get progress on the issues that we care about the most. The number one issue for this administration in this regard is obviously is the writ large, the counterterrorism issue is the defeat of ISIS, particularly in the region, the destruction of it uh, in the region. And there, Egypt has a role to play both in terms of Egypt itself of the kind of the three challenges that that Egypt faces when it comes to uh, Islamist terrorism the challenge of, of of the Islamic state itself inside Egypt in wilayat uh, Sina um, the 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 danger which is growing of the uh, the the activism and the poisonous narrative of the ikhwan morphing into um, um, direct action terrorist groups like Hassan, like Liwa'a uh, Thawra, um, and then the danger of kind of uh, that can come with this, this danger spreading in the Nile Valley going from Sinai in the Nile Valley and coming in from neighboring states where there's where there's ungoverned space places like Libya so so primarily looking at it through the lens of counterterrorism and looking at it through the lens of the kinetic part of counterterrorism <clears throat> but then the second part of that which i think the administration will be looking for is something which they have very very openly marked as a priority for the administration but have yet to flesh it out, and that is the, the ideological challenge of Salafi Jihadism in the region. You know, President, President Assisi, very early on, said some very positive things that were noticed in Washington, especially, to be blunt, on the Republican side. Uh, of the ledger in Washington about confronting uh, jihadism, about confronting, you know, in his speech to al-Azhar, confronting the kind of the ideological dimension of of the challenge. That is something that was received very positively uh, in this town, especially in certain areas. I know we certainly did in uh, at memory. So I think looking at how you both respond in a more effective way, kinetically, You know, what can the administration do, what can the administration do to get the Egyptians to move towards being – even more effective in counterinsurgency, even more effective in special operations uh, in Sinai. And then also creative, smart ways to go beyond, you know, some Azhar guy standing up and saying, you know, Salafi jihadism is, is bad. Kind of going on to find creative, smart, aggressive ways to challenge the appeal of the default ideology in the Middle East today. The default ideology in the Middle East today is some type of Islamism. So Egypt's role in that. The third thing, which um, you alluded to and you alluded to it as well, I see is actually less significance significant, which is the the idea of Egypt as this kind of regional player. Yes, the administration is interested in Arab-Israeli peace. Yes, Egypt can be helpful in Libya and Sudan and here and there and stuff like that. But I don't see that that is the real priority for the administration. It's more about counterterrorism. It's more about combating the threat of radical Islamism in the region and the sense that, yes, Egypt is a partner, Yes, Egypt is a, uh, an important partner, maybe the most important partner, but also Egypt is, and I commend those of you who haven't read it to Sam's piece for Hudson on this, Egypt is also the battlefield, mm-hmm. Egypt is also the playing ground where the struggle is being waged. That, in the end, is what makes Egypt most important. Aside from its, you know, its big army and its image of itself and the region and all of that, is that all of these fissures, all of these, uh, the, the, the crisis of, uh, crisis of authority in the Sunni Arab Muslim world, the challenge of Islamism, the challenge of governance, all of these are playing out on, on the great, battlefield which is the arab republic of egypt
0: sam so it sounds like what the ambassador is saying is that egypt could very well get its money after all that um, that uh if it can deliver on uh, and accept this new role of mm-hmm. counterterrorism, uh what do you think will it be able to, to can you tell us about what ISIS is doing in the Sinai right now. It's, uh, it's popped up with a video on the, threatening the cops, saying that they're, they're um, a number one target, that they are um, their favorite prey is the term, the phrase they use. And they also call themselves, I think, for the first time, the Islamic State of Egypt. Can you tell us more about what, uh, what is happening with ISIS?
1: Sure. Um, the Islamic, the Islamic State, of course, or let me put it this way. The problem of terrorism in Sinai, uh, goes back to about, uh, the year 2000 or 99, where the first Salafi jihadi group was formed in the Sinai, the Tawheed and Jihad. They conducted a number of, uh, operations targeting tourists. Um, they had the bombings of the hotels in Taba, in Nueva and other cities. And then we had a period, in a sense, of um, quiet in the Sinai as the group was um, uh, targeted by the Egyptian state, forced into going through the tunnels to Gaza where they mixed with Palestinian Salafis who had been fighting Hamas at the time, Ansar Gundallah and other groups, and created a new group out of that. The Egyptian revolution allowed them a free... Um, opportunity to operate in the Sinai, the collapse of the security forces there, and they created what they termed the supporters of uh, Jerusalem Ansar Bait al-Maqdis. Um, two years ago, they gave their allegiance to the Islamic State, which, through its establishment of a caliphate, became the most appealing um, jihadi Salafi jihadi group in the in the world, in this sense attracting supporters both in Egypt, in Libya, in Nigeria, in all other uh, areas of the world where Islamists see it as the most successful Salafi jihadi model to follow. Um, However, the group has also been a Sinai-based group. They have done uh, spectacular attacks in Cairo, uh, the bombing of the uh, Coptic Cathedral compound, other such attacks, Um, but they are also limited by the fact that they heavily draw their membership from the tribal networks of the Sinai. Their supporters, their their, uh, protection comes from the reality that there is a breeding ground there, there's a welcoming environment there that um, has been completely alienated by the Egyptian state, and that sees these guys as doing a noble fight against the repressive state. Uh, as a result, they've been able to grow their presence in Sinai. Initially, they were based in a small border area, the Rafah Sheikh Zuweid area. Now we're seeing them able to operate in al Arish, the capital of northern Sinai. We're talking about a city of a quarter of a million people, where they are able to um, have nightly patrols, for example, uh, checking driver licenses, Um, walking in the streets with their uh, rocket launchers and clashing coughs, that ability to project their presence and power in El Arish at the center of northern Sinai. That's um, a reflection of the growing uh, This
0: is hour. the area from where the Christians were, were are being killed and were being driven out.
1: Which brings us exactly to the Christians. Um, the Copts in Egypt, in a sense, have been always a favorite of Islamist groups. Uh, perhaps this is a reflection of the extraordinary number of Egyptians that have played an instrumental role in the formation of Islamist ideology, salafi ideology. So whether we're talking from Banna, from Sayyid Qutb, from Ayman al-Zawahri, Well, my homeland has been important in that regard. So naturally, these Islamists, uh, the hatreds towards the Copts, the intolerance that they have against them, has been translated into a significant presence of the Copts in the literature within the Islamist universe, even outside of Egypt. If you remember, for example, the targeting of the a church in Baghdad in 2012 in yes. sorry 2010 mm-hmm. December 2010 asking for the release of an Egyptian woman that they claimed had converted to Islam and was being held by the church this significance has always been there Um, We've also had the Copts in Egypt uh, receiving fatwas from uh, various Islamist groups in the 80s and 90s, saying that basically the rules of Zimmitude don't apply to them any longer. So if Zimnis are protected people under the rule of Islam, Copts were no longer Zimmis. They would not receive any form of protection, and thus their blood and targeting them is permissible. These fatwas have been now copied and repeated by the Islamic state, that's saying basically that all those rules of how these non-Muslims should be treated under the, the rule of the Islamic State do not apply any longer because the Copts, by their very actions, are warriors, are fighting against Islam, and thus it is permissible to target them. We've seen the targeting of um, uh, six or seven Copts killed in El Arish forcing the whole Coptic community of northern Sinai to leave the territory. But we've also seen a number of very um, alarming incidents of Copts being massacred, sometimes in their beds, uh, sometimes simply in the streets, in the last two or three months all over the country. Um, The Islamic State hasn't directly claimed these attacks, but it's a very interesting development that it's the same method, it's being repeated throughout the country. How much of this is a reflection of Islamic State supporters in these areas? That's something that we'll continue to see in the future.
0: and Ambassador, you've also written recently about another video that ISIS in Egypt has released last week um, about the um, sorcerers the, and you uh, the killing, the beheading of several sorcerers in Sinai. Uh, what is all that about? What are they... Uh...
2: Well, um, what that video tries to do is part of a larger trend, which actually ISIS does in other places. Mm -hmm. You have to remember that uh, while uh, ISIS propaganda is tailored to the reality of an audience that it's focused on, um, it, it, it has certain patterns everywhere you know that are that are found everywhere it seeks to present an alternate rule of governance and alternate reality uh of a specific place so the last video from a week ago which uh, which is called the light of sharia nur sharia uh an isis sinai video by the way it has elements which lead you to believe that and, and this is i think um you know, when, when you look at propaganda, you always have to remember that they're presenting a reality they want you to believe, right? So they present a skewed reality that shows ISIS-Sinai to be much more ubiquitous, much more powerful, much more controlling than it actually is. The video has elements which seem to indicate that it was probably, even though it's put out under the ISIS-Sinai brand, it was actually, uh, there was a lot of of, of editing and work done Outside of Egypt, uh, you know, whether in Raqqa or Mosul or, or, or you know, al or wherever it is, somewhere else there was a lot of, of prepping of, of that video. But what it seeks to present is an ideal form of jihadist governance. It's important to point out, because all too often the debate in Washington is, oh, you know, CC is bad, or CC is good, or Morsi was better, or whatever, and that the, the ISIS video, this ISIS video, and others before it, basically says that all of the Egyptian ruling class, past and present, all of them are infidel, all of them are to be rejected, <laughs> Ikhwan, anti-Ikhwan, Christian, Islamist, it doesn't matter. They're all bad. They're all servants of infidelity, uh, servants of of polytheism, and they all have to be uh, eliminated. And then in this video, which ends as they usually do with the money shot of two poor old men being beheaded as sorcerers, I mean, the whole video is basically showing this is a righteous Islamic government, this is what it looks like. So it shows, uh, you know, uh, 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 tobacco plants being torn up, drugs being burned, uh, Sufis being kidnapped, forcibly uh, brainwashed, or forced to repent and having to sign These are repentance Sunni documents. Muslims. Exactly. So it's basically about presenting a kind of idealized, stylized uh, uh, form of what a righteous you know, uh, governance under the flag of tawheed would look like. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously knowing and thinking that this message will resonate with part of the Egyptian population beyond its little enclave in Sinai.
0: Yeah, I want to get to that with you, Sam, because you have mapped the Islamist groups in Egypt and I want to hear about what your view is whether that kind of messaging is going to be as popular as it was in uh, Iraq and Syria, um, where ISIS also presented itself as a purifier, uh, driving out, killing, enslaving, uh, using these shocking, um, brutally methods, brutal methods that grabbed the world's attention, filming it in very professional, slick means. And also um, resurrecting these these long um, dead rejected practices of slavery, um, of chattel slavery, of sexual slavery of women, uh, of from the Yazidi and the Christian groups, and, and basically uh, in addition, declared you know, genocide by our government. Um, it is also a type of ethnic cleansing or religious cleansing, a purification. And um, so, will that. Is that what we're going to be? We're already seeing it in North Sinai. Are we going to be, uh, is this going to resonate among, and who would it resonate among, In e- which groups in Egypt?
1: Well, uh, I'd say in general, Islamism is, um, is in a state of perpetual flux. Um, by its very nature, Islamism uh, seeks to create a state that connects heaven and earth. Uh, a model of Islamic governance, um, a return to uh, previous centuries of Islamic practices, to a point in time when Islam was uh, great, both in military, material, and uh, cultural terms. Um, And that project, in a sense, until today, no one has been successful in finding uh, an actual methodology for achieving it. So uh, at certain point in time comes the Muslim Brotherhood and says, the methodology to achieve that uh, dream is to uh, the six stages that Hassan al-Banna articulated. We're going to uh, work on the Muslim individual, the Muslim uh, family, the society, until we reach the end state. Then will come the the uh, quietest Salafis, as they're referred to in Washington, and say, no, religion has been corrupted. We need to purify it. Uh, we need to bring new generations of Muslims on this purified form of religion. Comes um, jihadi groups and tell you that uh, we need to fight the governments that don't apply sharia, that don't um, apply the truth by by other than what God has actually revealed in his Quran. Um, That continuation, that continuous state of flux, is basically a result of the failure of previous ideologies and each one claiming to be the one. We're going to be the guys that achieve that dream. In a sense, the failure of all previous ideologies has been the the reason for the appeal of the Islamic State. if you're an Egyptian-Islamist, and you buy into the basic framework of the idea, and you look at the Muslim Brotherhood methodology today, where is the Muslim Brotherhood? Well, it's in jail, it's uh, underground, it's uh, escaping to Turkey and Qatar. It's not an it's not a successful model. If the Brotherhood model was so successful, why didn't collab, why did it collapse so easily in one year after coming to power? And uh, that's, let alone talk about the failures of that model actually achieving any of the Islamist um, demand list during its year in power. You look at the scene, you look at al Zawahiri, and where is this guy today? I mean, hiding in a in a cave in Afghanistan or a villa in Pakistan, whichever of them. The end result is that after 40 years of fighting for his dream, he's nowhere closer to it.
0: But, but Egypt isn't really secular the, the culture either and in fact the, a recent pew uh poll showed that over 70 percent of the population want ruled by sharia
1: i think it depends uh, i mean you ask these questions and it depends on uh how do you define sharia there's no doubt that the islamist message um is appealing in egypt continues to be appealing until today um, due to the fact that it has not been discredited as an ideology. A certain methodology of Islamism has been discredited, mm-hmm. that of the Muslim Brotherhood, but the ideology itself has not. Secondly, because there are no other competing ideologies. The basic premises of Islamism make sense for an average Egyptian. It doesn't make him a radical or an extremist or an Islamist per se, but these basic premises okay, are accepted.
0: But um, President al-Sisi and al-Azhar um, have been talking about a well, president al-sisi talked about a revolution in religion and, and then he went on to explain what he meant by that of being a revolution in ideology really not the religion itself and um so is that being received well is that is the government going forward with this uh, they've reformed some textbooks i think that allahs and he made this this appeal at al-Azhar, which is the uh, 10th century uh, center of Sunni learning. Um, so he made it to, and, he, and he, taught, he he challenged the clerics and religious scholars when, in his speech. Um, Al-Azhar has since then, more recently, also started talking about reform. What can you tell us about that? Ambassador, jump in, too.
2: Uh, well, I mean, um, the, the, the speech that Sisi gave was uh, well, very well received, but the follow-on has been, you know, as that Arab proverb says, you know, she was pregnant with a mountain and gave birth to a mouse. Uh, it it's, sounds better in Arabic. Uh, you know, the, the, this, a very sweeping, powerful speech. There, have, there has been some movement from Al-Azhar. There have been some efforts but there is a tremendous amount of space for Islamist extremism in Egypt still. In the media, um, in, in, in both print media and in broadcast media, you still have secularists uh, and liberals persecuted, not leaving the government aside, right, by the religious establishment. You have the cases of people like Islam Bukhari and people like that. So, so the government talked about reform and... The reform has been talked about, but hasn't been really been implemented. There's been a nibbling around the edges, but there you cannot say that the Egyptian government has done something which would be truly revolutionary that has never happened in the Arab world, which is to have a government on the level of ideology, on the level of of textbooks, on the level of the religious establishment, really embrace a kind of a liberal uh, reinterpretation of problematic texts and mm. and concepts that are used by salafi jihadists and by islamists to to right
0: what does jihad mean
2: nature the nature of that? jihad the nature of kufr the nature yeah. of shirk the question of governance of alwala walbara wa you know who rules Who are you loyal to? Who do you reject? All of those things. There's a lot that can be done. It seems to me the president, CC, kind of put out a very enticing marker, but there's a lot of work that has to happen, which hasn't even begun yet.
0: Yeah, there. There is, I guess, a a case in point is that the Roman Catholic Pope Francis is going to visit this the end of this month to Al Azhar, picking up. A ruptured relationship, ruptured by Pope De- Benedict XVI, who, uh, denounced the, uh, bombing of a church at Christmas time in Egypt, uh, Coptic church, and then asked for protections for the Christians. And, um, Al-Azhar said that was unacceptable, um, and that, that this was a, you know, a defamation of Islam. And, after the uh, Pope Francis's outreach and saying, you know we want to repair this and uh, in the fall uh, i th- I think I there was reports of a visit by the papal nuncio to uh, or, or, or by the the Sheikh um, Graham, imam to uh, the papal Nuncio saying, uh, you know we can do the visit, but no criticism of Islam, so it's going to be kind of a tricky conversation, I think, when the Pope
2: goes. I will say, Sam probably wants to respond to this, but one thing about Egypt which always struck me the first time I went there, which was 1984 as a young diplomat, is that every church in Egypt, and there are a lot of churches in Egypt, had a policeman guarding it. And why was that? Because also Christian cemeteries had a policeman guarding it. Because already, this is 1984, in the 70s, of course, Everything that you see today that was much of everything that was has been put into place uh, uh, with, against religious minorities in, in Iraq and in Syria had its provat, had its beginning in the 1970s. By these Salafi jihadist groups, Egyptian Salafi jihadist groups, the targeting of Christians, the robbing them, uh, saying that this was Ghanima or Jizya or whatever. The whole question of them not really being dhimmis or being dimmies and saying that they don't have a contract. Egypt was the proving ground for all of this stuff that we saw later on with Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State
0: do you want to what are some of the other benchmarks uh, both for Christians and and also um, you have written about anti-semitism I don't know that'd be another I mean, benchmark I suppose
1: on on the the issue of uh, President Sisi's uh, call for religious reform or religious revolution I think it was genuine Um it was unprepared he left his prepared uh, remarks in the classical arabic and just started speaking in colloquial egyptian dialect which um, reflected his own view but there never was a plan he has no idea how this uh, reform is going to happen uh, he simply left the task to al-azhar and once you began to see these voices Outside of the official religious establishment, people like Islam al-Bahiri that the ambassador um, mentioned, um, uh, a TV presenter who began attacking the text on which all the jihadi, Salafi interpretations are based. Uh, once you began to have that, the religious establishment auto- automatically called for stopping of this. The program was cancelled and Islam al-Bahiri was thrown in jail for a year. So there, the limits for blasphemy. For blasphemy, basically.
0: yeah, the blasphemy laws have
1: been uh, the the and this use, of course, of blasphemy laws to uh, stop any serious discussion. Uh, both as a method to target the religious minorities, uh, Christians, Shiites, Bahais have been targeted by these blasphemy laws, but also Muslims to stop any serious conversation, examination, yes. or calls for. Um, Different interpretations. We've seen that in the past from Nasr Hamid Abu Zid and, and the divorce case of, against him, that uh, since he is an apostate, then his Muslim wife has to leave him. We've seen the use of these right. blasphemy laws. Um, so there are limits to present Sisi's call. There's a, a genuine spirit there. Yes, he's a, he would like to see a reform of the religious discourse, but he has no plan. Plus, he has to deal with the reality of al-Azhar. He's recently also clashed with al-Azhar over the question of divorce, for example. He commented on the high number of divorces in the country, asking if there can be a limit on the right of divorce. And the uh, answer from al-Azhar was a very clear public uh, humiliation of the president, of no, and this is not debatable, this is the, the religion as it is, Basically, don't talk about these issues or you will be humiliated in public. So, so I think there are, um, while Washington has welcomed this talk a lot, there are actually a lot of limits to what Sisi can offer in this regard. The Egyptian educational system remains a disaster. Um, It simply teaches nothing about the outside world. And in that vacuum, the Islamists fill it. My favorite story is about an Egyptian journalist, a Christian, who was getting engaged and being asked by a colleague of hers uh, where her husband would spend the first night. Um, I mean, she didn't get the question, what do you mean? We're not sure where we'll spend the honeymoon. No, I mean... Where will he be when the priest is with you? Turns out that her colleague and many Egyptian Muslims believe that uh, Christian girls, the night of first night, goes to the priest. Where did they get that idea from, you might wonder? Well, it's a movie, Braveheart. In the absence of any actual information about people that they have shared uh, 14 centuries of living together, I mean, in a sense, every Egyptian Muslim, his great-grandparents were originally Copts from Egypt. And that lack of knowledge about people that you live in the same country with, allowing all these superstitions, these conspiracy theories, these propaganda by Islamists to fill that vacuum, This lack of knowledge about world religions, uh, I mean, Nina, you've done work on the um, Saudi textbooks and and the kind of intolerance that they teach. A similar story is in Egypt, whether it's in Al-Azhar textbooks or even in the Egyptian government
2: textbooks, in the other simply doesn't exist. One one of the great ironies is you know you have the Egyptian government and its supporters and you have the uh, opposition, especially the Islamist opposition and its supporters. And of course they disagree on many things. But you can find virulently virulent anti-Semitism in the pro-government camp, and you can find yeah. virulent anti-Semitism in the anti-government camp. And each one blaming the others of being in the pocket of the Jews or the pocket of the Israelis or the pocket of the Jews. And the israelis that's that's one area where actually they both share the same some of the same elements of the worldview and it's, it's as sam said is because they're drawing from a kind of a heritage of anti-semitism just like there is a heritage of an ingrained deeply ingrained anti-christian sentiment that has always been there for many years it doesn't mean that all muslims in egypt are are, are anti-christian but that element has always existed to a certain extent Uh, I mean, uh, if you read the Brotherhood sources, Sisi is Jewish. His mother is a
1: Moroccan Jew. If you read the government sources, (laughs) Hassan el-Banna, the founder of the Brotherhood, is a Jew, of course. So both agree on that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, and then the protocols of the elders of Zion that fabricated uh, anti-Semitic tract from Bolshevik. Russia was... um, but on TV during Ramadan through a government-sanctioned uh, uh, outlet.
1: In Back in, yeah, 2002. Yeah, yeah. And
0: and I'm sure the, the the track itself can be found in Arabic definitely, easily. Definitely.
1: I mean, it's one of the most popular books if you're walking in the streets of Cairo.
2: Well, uh, one time um, a few years ago, I last time I was there for the U.S. government, uh, which was uh, three years ago, I was staying at the Semiramis Intercontinental Hotel, and there was, in the little bookstore there, you go in and there was an entire shelf of anti Semitic material in Arabic. The protocols of the Elders of Zion was just one. There was a whole range of, you know, vampires with the Star of David on them and this kind of, of material in a five-star hotel frequented by by foreigners. And of course this was in Arabic. I think probably maybe Saudi guests get it a lot. But it's important while this is true, it's important also I want I don't want to always focus on this, but, but Sam wrote a tremendous piece on the Jewish experience in Egypt, which I, if you haven't read it, uh, really captures the nuance of of this phenomenon, and it's there's a lot of negativity, there's a lot of awful things, but there's a lot of complexity as well, and I highly recommend his piece on this uh, issue, I forget the name of it, but it's a tremendous piece that he wrote. <laughs>
0: OK, I think we should now turn to public questions. And we have quite a few. OK, should we start in the back, move forward? And please identify
3: your, yourself and your organization. Hi, uh, I'm Christina Arriaga. I'm one of hi, fellow Cuban. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I am one of nine commissioners at the United States Commission on International mm-hmm. Religious Freedom. And um, thank you, Sam, briefed us before we went to Egypt earlier this year. And um, we heard a lot of what you said, but we also met with a lot of NGOs and evangelical groups, and we met with uh, the Pope, and we met with the Grand Sheik of al Hazar and we also got a lot of stories about... um, or a lot of factual evidence, they argue, that we should be supporting al-Sisi's government for his great improvements in the religious freedom area. So one, some of the things they quoted, for instance, was that the Sheik had participated in a number of interfaith dialogue and conferences, and they're holding one at the end this fall. Uh, The pope said that al-Sisi had attended three um, Christmas. um, Was it two or three? I thought it was two. To to um Christmas celebrations there, which was unprecedented and that signaled that the cops would be protected. Of course, afterwards there was there was a bombing. Um there was a lot of the evangelical ministers we met with said things were vastly better under Al Sisi, um, and that a lot of his policies had to do with dealing with huge cultural and complex issues. If you had to rank them in turn of in terms of advances or not advances of religious freedom, what would you say?
2: Um,
1: I have no doubt that President Sisi is um, not a fanatic. Um, I don't think there's any doubt that, um, any any suggestion that he hates Christians or, or anything in that regard. Um, I think he also appreciates uh, the fact that the Christians didn't complain after the um, massive burning and attacks on Coptic churches in August of 2013, which was the largest attack on the Coptic churches since the 14th century. Um, he really appreciates the fact that Copts, in a sense, proved that they are loyal Egyptian citizens. He has an excellent working relationship with the Pope. However, this has not translated into anything um, meaningful for the people on the ground Um, building a church in Egypt remains a significant problem Um, we passed Egypt passed um, just um, at the end of 2016 a new law on the building of churches it makes matters I don't want to say worse but it doesn't change any of the facts on the ground of how impossible it is for you to build a church in Egypt uh, the Egyptian police does not protect cops from any of the attacks that they suffer from. In every single incident of attacks on cops, and we've had about a hundred um, such attacks under the CC government, um, the regime resorts to reconciliation sessions where the two parties, elders of two parties, are brought together to kiss each other, uh, usually giving in to the mob's demands. So if the mob is demanding that uh, Christians are prohibited from building a church in a particular village, then the reconciliation session decides that, yes, they won't get it, church. Um, and no one is punished, which creates a culture of not only impunity, but encouragement. Hey, let's go attack the Christians. Um, we're going to get what we want because the government is going to force them to accept that in the reconciliation session, and no one will ever go to jail for doing that. Um That's a serious problem. Uh, Cops in Egypt are, in a sense, not asking for a special status, but for the equal application of the law to protect people from having their homes burned into these regular pogroms that take place, uh, usually without anyone being killed, although there have been incidents of people being killed in them. But these have become really a regular occurrence in the country. the, the religious leaders in the Middle East are in a position that I don't envy them. Um, they are cornered from all sides and they uh, do what they can to protect their communities. So um, the position that they take, the, the defense of the governments that they offered are, is understandable given the circumstances that they are um, confronting. I, I mean, I, I'm happy I'm not in their shoes to uh, to be forced to deal with these um, horrible circumstances between uh, uh, the conditions that you're living in and the fear of
2: things going much worse if the Sisi regime would fall tomorrow. Just on that, I would add that there's been, and you mentioned it, uh, there's been a lot of positive symbolism, uh, and they focus a lot on that. And I'm sure with the Pope Francis visit, you're going to see a whole bunch of positive symbolism. The problem is the difference, as Sam said, between the symbolism and the reality, the kind of everyday reality on the ground for people, and especially let's face it, village people, poor people, people who can be easily uh, 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 attacked and and, uh, and humiliated. <laughs> On the other side, you do have to say that even with this symbolism, as weak as it is for us, you know, President Sisi's attack, there's a nicest video from 2014 where he's called, Ya Sisi, Ya Abdus Salib oh, you slave of the cross as an Egyptian, uh, ISIS fighter tears up his Egyptian passport. So even the weak tea that we see with that symbolism actually provokes a reaction, not just from ISIS, but from other Islamists as well. All the mythology that Sam referred to about kind of Christians, kind of similar to what anti-Semites would talk about Jews. You know, they have too much power and they have money and they are doing all these things. Uh, exists in the kind of the wider atmosphere there, and it's something that the government has to deal with. Even if the government wants to do more, it exists in an environment where that bigotry is deeply embedded in a broader society. Society that they need to appeal to to a certain extent to survive. Yeah,
0: Hillel in the back.
4: of of the Hudson Institute. Thanks very much for the discussion. Um, The title of this event and some of the discussion early on suggested that one big common ground between, uh, that will be discussed is uh, common enemies, uh, in particular ISIS. Um, And and uh, so, two questions. One is um, the focus is on ISIS, but of course, we have declared that we have two major enemies: region Iran as well as ISIS. So, I was wondering what uh, you what uh, you thought, especially Ambassador Fernandez thought, might be the character of the discussion about that between this administration and President Sisi. But also, what. What we m- might be asking Egypt to do on the counterterrorism front, and what they reasonably, in your judgment and experience, could be doing that they're not doing it already.
2: Well, on the on the Iran part, uh, definitely this is a theme that the. Um, uh, Leadership, the Sunni Arab Muslim leadership in the region, not just in Egypt, is looking for the administration to follow through and looking for it to differentiate itself from what it saw as the kind of um, uh, weak or dishonest or intentionally uh, betraying attitude of, of the previous administration. That's why, you know, one of the mythologies in Washington is, oh, you know, President Trump, all the Arabs are all upset about him. Actually, that's not exactly true because they see him, unlike people in Washington, see him within the context of what they saw as an Obama policy which favored the enemies of the Sunni Arab Muslim governments. Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, the Gulf states, etc. So there is a kind of sense that this administration should somehow have the Sunni Arab governments back when it comes to this issue. Now, how that's going to actually turn out after the priority issue, which is the defeat of the Islamic State, turns out that's that's a, a, a big question. Uh, on the whole question of counterterrorism, I think my sense is that um, the administration is first going to look home, that Egypt basically has to have a better handle on its own uh, you know, jihadist uh, threats that it has at, at home. It's addressing them, but but what are creative ways that can be done better, whether in Sinai or the Nile Valley or around the frontier? Um, the, the one thing I'd, I'd add is that the, the administration, I think, is, if it will approach
1: Egypt as the major Sunni country, is going to discover soon, just as the Saudis have discovered, that Egypt doesn't see itself as... A Sunni country in the first place. Uh, precisely because perhaps the Shiite community is so minute in size. This whole Sunni-Shiite divide does not resonate in Egypt the same way that it does in the Gulf or in the Levant. And as a result, Egypt has... Uh, given verbal support to Saudi Arabia. Uh, President Sisi famously says that it's a matter of just uh, the time it would take us to reach them. Um, If anything happens, we'll be there. Once things happened in Yemen, Egypt said, well, we have a long history in Yemen. We're not really interested in getting involved there. Egypt simply doesn't see Iran as an enemy or as a threat the same way that the other Arabs to its east see it. And that impacts the way that
2: it, uh, it will approach the issue. Although the irony there is, a memory we wrote a report on the television, is that Egypt actually produces its fair share of anti-Shia propaganda. Uh, maybe to appeal to a Gulf Arab audience, but there's actually... A lot of it is in the Gulf, a lot of it is in Egypt, a lot of it is in North Africa. And in both Egypt and North Africa, these are populations where actually there are no Shia or very and, few. And funded by the Gulf yes. annals and the Gulf institutions. <laughs> exactly. exactly.
0: Okay. Yeah. Okay, over here in the middle then.
3: Hi, Rachel Oswald, I'm a reporter with Congressional Quarterly. Uh, taking a broader look
0: at this topic, um, uh, I believe the misery index for Egypt stands somewhere around 45%. Um, as you know, half of Egypt is under the age of 30, um, high um, levels of youth unemployment. Um, and I'm wondering what all of this means for um Uh, President Trump's um, moves toward embracing Sisi, in the event that there is further domestic instability in Egypt, um, given all those um, population factors, what kind of a position will the United States be in if the Egyptian people, rightly or wrongly, perceive the United States as condoning human rights abuses?
2: Guess what? The U.S. is is committed no matter what it does. There's no way you can walk away from this. The the finessing that occurs in Washington about this maybe is, is noted by the Egyptian elite, you know, kind of Obama versus. But if you look at extremists and you look at the man in the street, it actually doesn't really matter that much. Uh, so this is basically a problem or an issue you have to deal with, so you better, you better engage. Try to get the change that you can. On economic issues, and just if I could just make a point on the misery index, there are two things. One, Egypt is very slowly improving on the macro level uh, when it comes to economic issues. It's still terrible. Uh, you know, it's number 122 in the World Bank index of ease of doing business, which is really bad. Uh, if they could get to the level of Morocco, which is, say, 68, That would be an improvement. One of the challenges for the administration is not so much not to embrace them, uh, as you said, one of the challenges for the administration is to, I think, is to move to do these big macro economic issues, you know, the stuff the World Bank has you to do and stuff like that, but to also find creative ways to help the underclass that make sense. In other words, you're doing these macro stuff that the economists ask you to do, which often Make life more miserable for the poor. You need to factor in the human dimension, as you know, the dimension that has occurred in in Egypt and in other places, and things like the rice, the price of bread, or the price of certain basic commodities, and kind of making, finding ways to kind of, on the micro level, try to make life a little more better, a little more dignified, and a little juster for your everyday citizen. Realizing that this administration is not going to be in nation building, it's not going to be able to 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 you know kind of turn night into day. Uh, I think there are stuff there is stuff that could be done on the development side uh, within the context of the administration radically remaking, for example, the work of US development, getting away from some of the ridiculous things we've spent money on in Egypt. There 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 are ways that you could kind of uh look at kind of addressing the poor in a better way. I think there was a poll done under the
1: um, back in 2014 or so uh, where positive perception of the United States stood at uh, the huge number of one percent. Uh, the Obama administration has managed to lose everyone in the country. Uh, The Islamists believed that it had condoned or supported the coup in some fashion. Uh, The regime supporters believed that it had supported the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, The Christians believed that it had created the Islamic State. Uh, You got a question about that, Ambassador, in (laughs) recent appearance on an Egyptian TV. Everyone in the country at this moment has a negative view of the United States. So I don't know how worse you can do... (laughs) no matter what policy you actually take. Um, The Sisi regime um, has very different understandings of human rights than the United States, if it has any in the first place. Um, There are huge human rights abuses in the country, um, but it is also uh, a very popular regime. I have no doubt that even in a free and fair elections, President Sisi would win the elections. Um, He he represents a certain reality in the country, a certain um, rejection of the Muslim Brotherhood, demand for a return to normalcy, to stability. Egyptians, the revolution has led to uh, a complete upheaval in the lives of Egyptians. And many people in Egypt will tell you, sure, things are not great, but better than being Iraq or Syria. And that's becoming the benchmark in the region. Um, You have a dictator, you have a human rights abuser, but look around you and I don't agree to that narrative, but it's a narrative that's uh, very popular in the country and that continues to to give President Sisi a base of support as well as the reality that there are no alternatives in Egypt. Uh, If you ask any Egyptian, he'll be hard-pressed to name you five individuals that could possibly be a serious candidate for president or for prime minister or for any position for that matter. So as... um, the CC regime is creating problems in the country, definitely, but I don't see any um, alternative on the horizon at the moment to that regime.
0: Well, thank you very much. We're out of time already, so that closes our program. I want to thank you all for coming, and please join me in thanking our discussants.
4: you.